Chapter 14 of A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Blethering Ape. A Theory of Monads, Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilding Carr. Chapter 14. The experimental method. If God gave to things accidental powers detached from their natures, there would be a back door for recalling the occult qualities which no power can understand. Leibniz. It follows from the metaphysical principle expounded in the last chapter that a certain practical character attaches to all knowledge and a certain theoretical character to all action. There is no absolute truth in the sense of propositions which would retain their meaning were every human interest absent from them. There is no independent criterion to which an appeal can be made. Life is reality, to live is to exist, and there is no reality transcending this existence. Monodology is based on this a priori impossibility of dissociating mind and universe. In order to see the full import of any theory, it is necessary to keep the antithesis clearly in mind, because all affirmation is negation. The strength of the antithetical theory, which dissociates mind and universe, and posits in the object of knowledge independent existence somehow revealed to a contemplating mind, is that it purports to afford an absolute basis for the truth, and also a principle for the progressive advance of the sciences. This apparent defect of monodology, and the antipathy which it has to encounter, is not only that it seems to fail to provide, but that it seems positively to deny, for the sciences, an independent foundation in reality. It declares them to be anthropomorphic in their very nature. The logical problem of monodology is to determine, and if possible, justify, the status it assigns to the mathematical, physical, and natural sciences. Philosophy is scientia scientiarum, and the philosophical ideal in all ages has been an organon embracing the whole range of human knowledge and exhibiting all departments of special sciences as links in a chain. We are accustomed to date the modern period of philosophy with the rise and development of inductive science under the experimental method. We owe to this method the peculiar aspect of our modern world. It has brought to mankind a vast expansion of knowledge and has given to knowledge a direction which has tended and increasingly tends to change completely the conditions of human life and to widen and strengthen in growing proportion as it progresses man's control over the forces of nature. The experimental method has always some expression in scientific inquiry for it is of the essence of the scientific spirit but the predominant place of experiment in science and the obviousness of it is entirely a modern thing. It would never have occurred to a Greek philosopher. It is doubtful if it would even have seemed relevant to make the experiments which Galileo carried out on the leaning tower of Pisa. It is true that Archimedes invented machines and made discoveries which were for a time successfully applied in the defense of Syracuse against the besieging Roman armies but his inventions were deductions from general principles, and it is doubtful, to say the least, if it ever did or ever could have occurred to him to establish rational principles by simple induction from particular experiments, 
still less to devise laboratory experiments in the modern manner. Aristotle was one of the greatest naturalists who have ever lived, a careful observer and minute describer of the various forms and functions of vegetable and animal organisms, but it would probably have seemed a priori absurd and contradictory to him to suppose that rational principles were to be inferred from observed uniformities, and not vice versa, viz., that the uniformities were to be interpreted by rationally discovered principles. If we can claim, therefore, in modern philosophy to have advanced beyond the Greeks, it is not merely in the extent and the range of modern science, but in the method and principle which have made modern science possible. The experimental method represents an attainment of the human mind, which has raised it to a higher intellectual level, with all that this implies in width of outlook and worldview than that which has ever been reached before. Any philosophical theory which fails to take account of and interpret the significance of this latest truly amazing victory of the human intellect stands self-condemned. It is no doubt the consciousness of this emergence of a new scientific principle and the victory it is assuring to man in his struggle against natural forces which must be taken to account for the rise and attractiveness of the scientific philosophies or philosophy of the sciences of the 19th century, in particular the positive philosophy of Auguste Comte and the synthetic philosophy of Herbert Spencer. The idea underlying both is that in these latter days there has arisen a new method and a new spirit of inquiry, and that humanity is now called upon to cast away the shell of outworn metaphysical systems which had cramped and confined the spirit, and entered with a new life into possession of a new inheritance. The experimental method never presented itself as a device or invention. Its exponents always claimed for it that it is the natural and obvious way in which knowledge is acquired, retained, and accumulated. The simple teaching of nature had been, it was said, overlaid and obscured by superstitions and conventions, which with their growth had acquired vested interests and established a lordship over the human spirit. The one thing needful was to fling off the old man of the sea. The experimental method purported to be nothing but the interrogation of facts without presuppositions, the acceptance of facts at their face value, and the interpretation of them in relation to human interests. This was simply to observe nature. It was not an acquirement or an attainment of the intellect, but the ordinary, untrammeled mode of the mind's activity. Now at last, declared the positivists, the bonds are broken and the human spirit is set free. The positivist theory of three stages in the historical evolution of human mental activity in relation to objective knowledge, the theological, the metaphysical, and the positive, pre-Darwinian, and without reference or relevance to biological evolution, has had a quite extraordinary influence in determining the present intellectual attitude towards science and philosophy. Although its claim to delineate definite historical periods and to pass judgment generally on the history of philosophy was soon modified, it nevertheless gained wide acceptance as a classification and natural history of the mind, and of its progress in the acquirement of knowledge. It fixed on metaphysics an absurd and irrational meaning from the reproach of which it has been slow to recover. According to the theory of positivism, the first impulse and direction of thought, confronted with the phenomena of nature, is to create in imagination supernatural agents, fashioned in the image of man, but endowed with the powers necessary to account for the forces of nature. 
In time, these imagined agents and powers fail to satisfy the conditions of experience and become impossible to harmonize with experience, and then the mind passes naturally to the second stage. This second stage is when the mind duplicates the phenomena of nature with shadowy, unsubstantial abstractions, posited ad hoc, as causal explanations, superior to the old theological ideas only in the fact that they are deprived of volition and caprice, the fruitful source of enslaving superstition. As soon as reflection discovers and exposes the insipidity of this device, the human mind attains the positive stage. Recognizing the reality which is presented to it in experience, the mind now accepts it as self-sufficient in its revelation and proceeds to classify and organize it instead of seeking to delve beneath it. But to decide to stop short of metaphysical inquiry, whether for utilitarian or any other reason, is not one and identical with disproving metaphysics, discrediting its results, and demonstrating its impossibility as a science. Yet this is what positivism claims to do. To assume arbitrarily that in the mathematical and natural sciences we possess knowledge in its objective and absolute meaning, and to denounce all investigations into the basis or ground of the assumption as prejudiced and vicious, is to adopt an attitude of irrational dogmatism as the only alternative to complete skepticism. It is so because the moment we attempt to justify the assumption as rational, we are involved in metaphysics. Is it not then verging on foolishness to pretend we have any power to refrain? What gives to the positivist the appearance of self-sufficiency in the science he appeals to is its amenability to classification and organization. Pure mathematics, which is not an empirical science, seems to supply a body of intuitive, unquestionable truth, and on this absolute basis is raised the whole hierarchy of the empirical sciences, growing in complexity, but interrelated and organically subordinated. Above all, the positivist points to the triumphant progress of knowledge, which has followed the employment of the experimental method and its practical outcome in the extension of the range of human activity. Against this experimental research, continually increasing the sum total of knowledge, the positivist pictures the speculative philosopher blindly wandering in the obscurity of metaphysics, ever darkening counsel and mistaking shadows for substance. Yet positivism, with all its protesting, has a metaphysics, and a metaphysics which is not simply equated with unknowability. It has a metaphysics of the knowable, of the positive character of the reality which science affirms. How can it be otherwise? Consider the aspect of the world which science presents to us. A spatial universe, infinite in extension, a series of events with an infinite past and future, laws of mass and movement identical at all times and in all places, this is the knowable universe. Its limitations are not the unknowable, but the unknown. It is not prima facie extravagantly improbable that such a knowable universe, assuming it to be objectively independent of our mind and absolute in its existence, should reveal at once its nature and existence to any infinitely insignificant mind willing to contemplate it without prejudice. Yet this amazing assumption is to satisfy the inquiring mind without any support from metaphysical theory. It does not satisfy, and it is impossible that it should, because it strikes athwart the natural disposition of man's intellect, which is framed and fashioned to seek reasons for what it believes. 
The study of the history of human intellectual development discloses a very different course of evolution from the imaginary stages of the positive theory, and shows that so far from the experimental method being the original and natural mode of investigation, only obscured by convention and superstition, it is a high and very late attainment. It rests on a new concept of reality, a concept unknown to the Greeks and unknown to the patristic and scholastic philosophy, or at least a concept which never reached expression in their thought. More than this, it is a concept which could not have found expression in modern philosophy had we not the Greek and Christian philosophy as our inheritance. The concept of nature which underlies the experimental method is the direct opposite of the concept of animism. The animistic concept is that the movements or changes which appear to us in external nature are the actions, or the results of actions, of beings actuated by desire and volition. The phenomena of nature are conceived on the exact analogy of our own actions, which are the outward expression of inner understanding and will. The rational attitude of a creature in a world animistically conceived is propitiatory not cognitive, or cognitive only with a view to propitiation. It is clear that with such a concept, experiment as a means of discovering truth is irrational, though it may indeed be a means of obtaining favors. Imagine an animal for whom all nature is its human environment, as it practically is for the domesticated dog, or the sheep, or the canary, whose life and activity depend on human routine actions and dispositions. Suppose such an animal to develop a high degree of intelligence of a form analogous to the human. For such a creature, human beings and their dispositions of inert matter are the external world. Any concept of external nature such a creature might acquire must of necessity be animistic. If it were not, and to the extent that it was not, it would be untrue. It is difficult to imagine in what way for such a creature any concept not animistic would work, or any meaning in which such concept could be true. But the same animal in the wild state would be in a totally different case. It would be, in fact, in an analogous condition to man himself, and if it acquired the human mode of intellect, it might adopt an animistic concept of its external world, but would not be under a necessity to do so, and if it did, it might advance beyond it. The animistic concept is neither irrational nor non-rational. It is the characteristic original and universal concept of primitive peoples. Even more striking is its persistence in the highest stages of culture. Consider how anthropomorphic we are in our ordinary experience, despite any degree of scientific discipline, and anthropomorphism is the essence of animism. How impossible it is for us to see the dog looking up into our face and realize its essentially different mentality. How difficult to throw off the notion that the fly which is worrying us with its persistent attentions and warily avoiding our attempts to capture it is inspired in its behavior by suspicion, fear, cunning, and such like incentives. It is most important, however, to recognize that even in its most extended application, the animistic concept is not irrational. Were we not subjects of experience, conscious of our active psychical powers, we should have no knowledge. What surer principle, then, can we appeal to than that inner experience itself? Moreover, we start our experience, not as minds confronted with an unresponsive world of inert matter, 
but as helpless members of a responsive community. The really extraordinary step to explain is how we come to recognize a non-living world, how we reach the concept of inert matter, how we have attained to the fundamental concepts on which we have been able to erect the mathematical and physical sciences. What then is the fundamental concept on which the experimental method depends? It is the concept of an external world, the laws of which are definitely and absolutely determined by the nature of its constituents, and whose constituents are completely independent of any conscious process or order of knowing. More precisely, it is the concept of a material substance and of an efficient causation which are independent of life and consciousness. Without this concept, there might be psychical science, there might even be mathematical science, but there could not be physical science. The experimental method is serviceable in physical science just because that science excludes from the concept of physical reality the possibility of caprice. Mathematics is not experimental in its method in the sense in which physical science is essentially so. A clear illustration of this is afforded in the case of the non-Euclidean geometries. The truth of these is their logical consistency, and their content wholly depends on the choice made of postulates. Their claim on our acceptance depends purely on their convenience in working. But in regard to any one of them, or to the Euclidean geometry itself, we may raise the question, is it physically true? The question can only be decided by an application of the experimental method, and such an application may or may not be possible. To set about it, the first condition is to determine some natural phenomenon which, on the hypothesis of the truth of the mathematical theory, would undergo in stated circumstances some definite alteration or some distortion in its normal appearance, then to contrive the means of artificially producing these conditions. The concept of reality underlying such a method excludes and rejects absolutely the notion of any choice whatever so far as the physical basis of the science is concerned. In this respect, therefore, mathematical and physical science are in marked contrast, and mathematics cannot be, as positivism claims, the basis of physical science. A remarkable instance of the relation of mathematics to physics is afforded by the story of the Eclipse Expedition of May 29, 1919. The expedition was organized with a view to testing the general principle of relativity. So far as pure mathematical science was concerned, there was no need of any test of that principle. That principle was methodological and proposed no more than the non-Euclidean geometries proposed, namely to choose other postulates than those in ordinary use. Those physicists and mathematicians who rejected it did so not on any ground of truth or falsity, but purely on the ground of convenience and expediency, the same ground on which the non-Euclidean geometries are rejected in practice. In one sense, there is no meaning in asking whether the principle of relativity is physically true or false, because being a mathematical and not a physical principle, all that is necessary is to establish that it is not contradictory. But there is an overpowering bias in the human mind which prevents it resting satisfied with non-contradictory principles and requires it to determine the relation of every principle to actual existence. This is the basis of the experimental method. It brings theory or hypothesis to the test of physical fact. We want to know of everything, 
not merely whether or not it may be so, but whether, as matter of fact, it is so. Einstein, in formulating the general principle of relativity, and particularly its application to the laws of gravitation, had suggested an experimental test. He worked out a particular effect and foretold a hitherto unobserved phenomenon. The eclipse of the sun on the one day of the year, May 29th, when there are bright stars very near the disk, afforded the opportunity, and the English expedition carried out the observation. The test was this. The light which reaches us from the fixed stars is assumed to follow a straight line. The stars are fixed in the sense that their relative positions are unaltered throughout the diurnal and annual revolution of the firmament, but we only see the stars at night, and then their light is far removed from any gravitational disturbance such as takes place in the neighborhood of the sun. Einstein predicted that during the eclipse, when the stars near the sun would be visible, it would be found that they had suffered a definite shift, the amount of which he calculated. What was the meaning of this? It is simply impossible to imagine a curving of the light rays as due to light itself following a devious path. The trajectory of a light signal must be the shortest distance between the point of origin and the point of observation. Were it not, it would be conceivably possible to see a point of light before the light reached us. And such an idea is a self-contradiction. If, then, the light from a star is curved in the gravitational field, it cannot be because the light is not following the shortest path, but because the space is warped or curved. Einstein's test was therefore a true experimental test of the nature of space, whether it is Euclidean or not. The warp in space would reveal itself in the displacement of the star. The prediction was verified, and the result of this single observation was, allowing for doubts as to possible explanations, to establish as physical fact that space cannot be regarded as Euclidean, or that the Euclidean postulates are not universally valid. A more complete illustration of a reversal of theory, amounting practically to a revolution, following on a single application of the experimental method, could hardly be found. What then is the nature? And what is the ground of that complete confidence which we place in it? Why is one experiment sufficient to establish the fact that when analogous conditions are present, an analogous result is to be expected and will surely take effect? Let us notice then, in the first place, that the certainty we feel in the application of the experimental method and in the predictions of physical science based upon it is totally different in its nature from the intuitive certainty of mathematics. Experiment deals with concrete fact, with existence. Mathematics deals with abstract relations and is indifferent to the existence of the terms. The predictions of science are not like the predictions of mathematics based on perceptions of identity, but on perceptions of analogy. In experience, nothing is repeated. What happens in experience is an event, and no event can be identical with another event, or in any literal sense a repetition, and yet on the basis of experiment, physical science can predict with absolute certainty the character of an event, given the condition of it. The certainty of physical science is not only not based on mathematics as the positivist theory supposed, it is distinguished by its complete contrast to mathematical certainty. Physics is concerned only with existence. Euclid's propositions are true of any possible universe to which Euclid's postulates apply, whether or not such a universe exists. 
the same is true of Lobachevsky's or of Ryman's geometry. Physical science, on the other hand, depends on sense-given, intelligibly apprehended existence, and this means that physics, whatever its relations to mathematics, is not the consequence of which mathematics is the ground. There is no direct advance from mathematical truth to physical reality. What then is the ground of scientific certainty, a certainty which, unlike that of mathematics, is never absolute, never rises above a degree of probability, but which also, unlike mathematics, gives a real satisfaction to the inquiring mind? There are two historical answers. One is the answer of the English empirical school, according to which the understanding possesses nothing but what reaches it through the senses. Belief, assurance, confident prediction are the product of a habit induced by objective association. The other is that of the intellectualist a priori school, that the categories are frames which the understanding possesses independently of experience, and which therefore determine the form of knowledge in advance of experience. The laws of nature, or the uniformities of the objective world, are not a revelation to experience, but an organization of experience. The problem of modern philosophy has been to decide the issue between these two interpretations. It has taken the form of the relative claims of truths of reason and of matters of fact to precedence on the ground of primacy. Experience is not experiment and the empirical principle in philosophy is not identical with the experimental method in science. Neither learning by experience nor the ability to profit by experience implies or depends in any way on experimenting. Moreover, the experimental method is not and could not have been an empirical discovery. It could not itself have been discovered by experimenting, for it rests on a concept of reality which could not have been learned from experience. It depends on the concept that objects or things are endowed with a determinate and inalienable nature of their own. The experimental method is both theoretically meaningless and practically worthless unless what a thing does reveals what a thing is, and not merely what happens to it. And what a thing does can only reveal what it is if the action flow from its nature. This is the concept of the monad, and the monad is the only concept which completely realizes the experimental method. Leibniz has expressed it in the passage from the Nouveau Essay, Book 4, Chapter 3, which I have quoted at the head of this chapter. He states it in the terms of the concept of the relation of the creator to the creation, but the concept itself is clear. If there are no monads, the experimental method is irrational. The classical argument in this case is Hume's skeptical criticism of the concept of cause, or, as he called it, the idea of necessary connection. This philosophical argument is in reality fatal to physical science. It cuts away its whole ground. But inasmuch as science has always seemed in some way to be peculiarly dependent on the empirical principle, and its methods to be practically identical with the empirical method, there have been many and repeated attempts to show that the idea of cause, like the idea of substance, is one to which science can be and is entirely indifferent. But what in that case becomes of the experimental method? Experiment is quite different from observation of sequences and the formation of expectations based on probabilities. In a scientific experiment, repetition is entirely unnecessary for the establishment of fact or truth. 
If it be repeated, it is to test the accuracy of the experiment, not to add cumulative effect to the fact established. It is the essence of the experimental method that one instance is decisive. It may be objected, perhaps, that although the monadic concept may be implied when the matter of investigation is the behavior of conscious or even of living beings, or of the actions which are attributed to them, it is quite irrelevant when scientific inquiry is directed to the purely mechanical actions and reactions of the spatio-temporal material world. To introduce the monadic principle here, it may be said, would be a simple return from naturalism or positivism to animism. This would be true were the intention to personify or to consider as individual monads all the perceptions of physical things, or all sensible qualities of things, or pure sensibilia, apprehended by the mind in its perceptions. But these, as we have seen, are not monads, for they are not things in themselves. The monadic theory is that anything which is a thing in itself is a monad. Only in the meaning that it is a subject of activity with its own point of view can a thing be real, and only when so conceived is it a monad. So that whatever is real in the universe is referred to the monads, for they are the only reals. In order, then, to see how the experimental method depends for its rationality on such a concept, let us consider it in its relation to the alternative theory, which we will call atomism. Take the latest theory of the atom, and let us agree to regard the atomic theory as in no sense hypothetical, but as demonstrably actual. The atoms, then, are the forms which reality assumes in its basal and most elementary constitution. The atom itself, as we deal with it, is not simple, but we suppose it resolvable ultimately into what is the limit of simplicity, the unit charge of electricity. Let us accept this without raising the obvious difficulty that a unit of charge of electricity, if it be positive, can only exist so long as a negative charge is opposed to it, and that therefore in positing a unit charge of positive electricity, we are positing also a negative. Now the whole rationale of experimenting lies in its test character. We use experiment as the crucial criterion which is infallible. We do not use experiment for the purpose of calculating probabilities. If all that an experiment could prove were that what repeatedly or unfailingly has been found to occur under certain circumstances will probably occur again under like circumstances, it would be absolutely otiose. On the contrary, the ground of the experimental method is the certainty that what has happened once, if rightly interpreted, reveals the absolute character of the real. If it enables me henceforward to foretell what will happen, it is not because it has established a probability, but because it has given me knowledge of a real nature. Apply this, then, to our case in point. We are to assume that the ultimate reality of nature is the unit electric charge. How, in such case, are we to rationalize the experimental method? Whatever result, in any case, flows from our experiment will not flow from the nature of this unit electric charge, for by the hypothesis it is what it is, it will flow from something adventitious to that nature. By the very concept of reality, we are prevented from appealing to it for any character or nature it exhibits. All its properties and qualities must flow from something which in itself it does not contain. Do we demur? Do we deny this indifference of the reality to quality? 
do we affirm that all the properties and character of nature flow from the unit electric charge? Then we find that instead of conceiving, as we supposed, something absolutely simple and really elementary, the limit of inertia, we are conceiving something active, self-centered, and all-comprehensive. We are conceiving not the atom, but its opposite, the monad. There is no rationality in the experimental method unless the reality of the universe be monadic. End of chapter 14